From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. This is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're going to empty out the mailbag. We won't be taking your phone calls today. Father John Tregilio is high over North Carolina or somewhere en route to us here at EWTN. But unfortunately, he happens to be en route while we're doing the show. So we had to make provisions for him to uh, make that trip. So we're recording this mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. And um, Father John, I hope you're enjoying your flight. (laughs) I hope I get the crackers. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. I'm sure you will. Kick things off with an email from Patrick, and he says, Does the Holy Spirit speak to atheists and non-Catholics? How can you know who or what is speaking to you? Well, certainly uh, the first time, you know, the Holy Spirit speaks to anyone, it's not contingent on the fact that you're a believer. Um, I mean, prior to being called, uh, Abraham wasn't really a, a believer yet until... You know, God spoke to him. Now, how do you know it's the Lord? Well, certainly there, there are signs of, of the fact that this is consistent with what uh, revealed truth has told us. So if this is the same message or tone you would find in sacred scripture or sacred tradition, uh, it makes no sense for God to contradict himself. So if you're hearing a voice telling you to do things which are contrary to what we already know God has revealed to us, then it's not God. It's probably the evil one, or there's some uh, psychosis going on in, in someone's uh, uh, psyche there. But uh, first of all, you want uniformity and consistency. Uh, God's not going to, you know, contradict Himself and tell you there's only four commandments when there's when there's ten. Um, he's not going to tell you that uh, there's only one sacrament when there's seven. But also, uh, the fact that what is God speaking to you about? He's going to obviously seeing you as someone made in his image and likeness, that you are a child of God, that you have a supernatural destiny, uh, that he wants what's best for you. If you hear anything else, then again, it's either of the evil one or something else. He's not going to tell you how to rob a bank, is he? Not going to tell you how to rob a bank. He's not going to tell you to do something bad or evil. Um, But, you know, when people say, well, you know, God told me to do it. Uh, No, it doesn't work that way. Now, there's people who say the devil told them to do something wrong, and maybe it was the devil, maybe it was just their own, you know, uh, con- confused mind. But uh, if God is speaking to us, and I do believe He does speak to us in prayer, you may not hear audibly with your ear a voice, but you may hear Him internally. A lot of people hear the Lord in in that sense. That's a real communication as much as hearing a physical voice. It's always good when we can work a little Flip Wilson theology into the program. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you remember Flip Wilson. And it was it was Geraldine Jones that said, "Geraldine Jones, devil, and don't forget, devil made her do it." And her boyfriend, and don't forget, killer. killer. Yep, her boyfriend, killer. <laughs> boyfriend, killer. <laughs> Sean writes in, "Can you explain the Catholic view of the atonement? Can you explain how indulgences came about?" Well, indulgences are uh, an application of the infinite and superabundant merits. First of Jesus, that's infinite. Uh, All the sufferings he endured on Calvary, on Good Friday, 
were more than enough that were needed to, to save the, the human race. And the uh, merits also of his mother, because she endured her seven sorrows, and she was guilty of no sin. And then all the excess sufferings of the saints, okay, all this put together, uh, the church calls that the treasury of merit. The problem with the word treasury is people look at it sometimes from a very a Pelagian outlook that, you know, it's like uh, amounts of money. No, it's this idea that there was so much done by God, by Christ on the cross, and by Mary and the saints, that that could be applied, and that's what happens in an indulgence, is that when someone's spiritually disposed, and that's the key here, uh, for you to get a plenary indulgence, which is a full remission of temporal punishment due to sin, you must be in the state of grace, and you must also be free from any attachment to venial sin, in addition to doing the prescribed work. Um, like, for instance, there's a, a plenary indulgence if you pray before a nativity set that... Uh, Pope Francis just made because it's the 800th anniversary of St. Francis of Assisi erecting the first Christmas crash. Um, you must uh, pray for the Holy Father. You must go to Holy Communion. You must go to confession 21 days before or after the prescribed act. But you must also be free from any attachment to sin for it to be a full plenary indulgence. If it's in any way not a full detachment, then it would be a partial indulgence. Um, in ancient books, uh, the old Recolta would talk about 300 days indulgence or four quarantines. Problem with that nomenclature is that people looked at it merely from uh, a numerical standpoint. Like, well, Grandma, you know, needs some time shaved off of purgatory, so I can get 300 days of her sentence remitted if I do this particular thing, and then I get the indulgence. Church never meant it in that way. What it meant was 300 day, whatever the equivalence of doing 300 days worth of penance or good works, whatever uh, merits would be accrued with that, then that's the equivalent. It's not a quantification of saying you get 300 days shaved off. That's not the way it looked at. So we just got out of that way of describing just a full indulgence or partial uh, indulgence. Uh, so Jesus atoned for our sins, but he gave so much, it was more than enough, and yet... Despite that, he also left an opening because St. Paul says, all right, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ I take upon myself. It's not that Jesus could not have uh, done everything, but he purposely wanted, because that's why he says, take up your cross and follow me. So when you, we unite our sufferings with Jesus, it's not because he couldn't have done it that way, but he wanted us to unite ourselves with him. And so his suffering paid for the penalty of our sins, but we're part of the equation, too, by his choice. Isaac writes in, and he said, I've heard a lot about same-sex marriage recently, but one thing I haven't heard is why is it actually not allowed in the Catholic Church? Okay, it's not allowed for the same reason that a brother and sister can't marry each other. Uh, it's not part of the divine plan. It's not part of the natural law. Um, you could have very good, nice people, uh, and, you know, a brother and sister could, you know, feel uh, attracted to each other, but they're not allowed to marry each other. That's not marriage. Marriage is one man and one woman who are not that closely related. You would have to be, you know, at least uh, second cousins for that to be permitted in the church. Likewise, uh, it's one man and one woman. You know, we, we, we're, we don't allow polygamy, and we don't allow same sex. Now, if you put them all together then it makes sense. 
if we only isolate, say, oh, well, you know, we're, we're being mean or nasty uh, to people uh, who are homosexual. No, we're being consistent across the board that uh, a couple who's been married together, they're not allowed to remarry if they're valley married, uh, even though they might get divorced. That's not considered uh, being mean or nasty. So when you take all the teachings of the church, it consistently reaffirms what we teach about marriage. It's a covenant uh, uh, that's only broken by death between one man, one woman, uh, for the rest of their lives. Max writes in, why would Jesus frequently perform a miracle and then tell people not to talk about it? <laughs> that is a good question. It's part of what they call the messianic secret. Um, he didn't want people to come looking to him like he was the, the, the goose that laid the golden egg or he was the genie in the bottle or the uh, genie in the lamp if you watched uh, Bugs Bunny. He's not there just to crank out favors. Uh, he's not a spiritual ATM. So when he told people don't go telling people about this, he didn't want people coming to him for healing for the wrong reason. That, oh yeah, fix me and then I'll run off. Because remember, when he cured those 10 lepers, only one came back and he said, where are the other nine? The other nine should have come back and should have said, we're grateful, we're thankful that you cured us. So, And, and why is it Jesus only cured some people? If he's God, and someone asked me this once, why did he just cure everyone? Well, his purpose wasn't to bring physical healing to everyone. His purpose was to bring spiritual healing to everyone, or at least make it available to everyone. And uh, Hudson wants to know, why is the host broken during the consecration? The host is broken because it was broken at the Last Supper. It's also a reminder that Christ's body was broken, in a sense, on the cross. Um, not that they, they obviously did not break his legs like they did the other two thieves because he was already dead. But this idea of body broken, blood spilled, uh, is the, the nomenclature for uh, when someone dies. And Jesus' body is broken in that sense uh, by his death. And we call it the fractioning, right, when the priest breaks the host. Now, in ancient times, they literally would break a piece off uh, the host and then uh, take it to another uh, religious, uh, to another Christian community. Um, that was the way they, they showed their, their, their unity. The bishop would send a, a particle, but that became very impractical, so we don't do that part anymore. A very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's open line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Got a neat uh, item for you here. Uh, it is uh, from EWTN's religious catalog. It's Raymond Arroyo's got a new Christmas album called Merry and Bright. Raymond brings his New Orleans-style jazz roots and well-honed dramatic talents to a heartwarming all-new classic Christmas album, Merry and Bright. It's now available for you at EWTNRC.com. Um, it's a special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today, except for Lorraine and Bambi, who have held on from a previous show. 
And first up will be Lorraine in Chicago, Illinois, listening on the EWTN app. Lorraine, thank you so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Yes, hello. I was calling about the last... Why do you forget this word? I keep forgetting the word. About the last judgment? Yes, thank you. My goodness. (laughs) You want me to judge again? (laughs) You want me to judge again at the last judgment, will you? Just so that everybody knows what you did in life. Yes, that's correct. The general judgment is not an appeal. It's not going to the Supreme Court. It's basically a manifestation and revelation of all the particular judgments so that when you're in heaven, you'll know why those other people are there and they'll know why you're there, uh, maybe to their disbelief. And you'll also know why the ones who aren't there are in hell because the general judgment is not another judgment. It's it's a revelation, a manifestation of all the particular judgments. So the particular one is the most important. The general is just, it publicizes in a sense so that uh, God's justice and mercy will be known by everyone. So no one who has gone through their particular judgment and finds themselves in heaven or purgatory should have any fear of the general judgment at all. None correct? whatsoever, and those in hell have no no reasonable hope either. Does that help, Lorraine? It, yes, it does. All right, <laughs> thank you so much for holding on. We appreciate it. Again, we won't be taking your calls today, but we did have a couple folks hanging on at the end of the last program, so we want to get to them. The next one is Bambi in Atlanta, Georgia, listening on The Quest. Bambi, you're on with Father Trujillo. Oh, hello, Father. Hi. Um, hi. I would um, like you to speak to uh, the word worship versus venerate with regard to relics and the saints, because I think the words are uh, taken the wrong way a lot of the time, and people who don't know the difference, um, it sheds a uh, bad light on the church and our beliefs. Yes, that's very good. Because the English words, just like we had a question uh, in a previous episode, people said that, well, praise in many people's minds means the same as worship or adoration, but no, it doesn't. They're two separate words. And in Latin, we have one word for worship and adoration, that's uh, latria, which is only given to God. And then we have veneration, okay, which is dulia. And then the highest form of, 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 uh, of honor is hyperdulia, and we give that to the Virgin Mary. So veneration of Mary and the saints is giving honor. It's honoring who they are, because even in the commandments, it says honor your father and mother. Honor is not worship. Honor is not a door. So venerate and, you know, venerating someone, we venerate, you know, the, the, the founding fathers. We venerate uh, those who bravely served our, our, uh, our military. Uh, when I take uh, seminarians uh, to, um, to Italy next uh, uh, semester, we're going to visit the um, World War II cemetery, and we're going to say a prayer and pay uh, veneration to all those brave uh, men and women who died uh, in the service to their country and to uh, free um, the free Europe from the, the ravages of, of Adolf Hitler. So veneration is not the same as adoration, uh, but it's a good word. Uh, and so even in English, the fact that we have separate words, but sometimes the English words have many multiple uh, meanings. That's why, you know, when you have a thesaurus, you can see all these possible uh, synonyms in there. 
But in terms of theo theologically, uh, adoration and worship or latria goes to God alone. Uh, dulia is for uh, the veneration of the, of the saints, which we certainly give to their relics. And then hyperdulia, the highest form of honor or veneration, goes to the Virgin Mary. How do we do, Bambi? That's great. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. We appreciate the call. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. Do you have a question from Lynn? Wants to know, what's the distinction between spiritual gluttony and the pursuit of wisdom, and how do I know which one I'm engaging in? <laughs> um, I have to say, spiritual gluttony is not um, mentioned <laughs> In the catechism, uh, but I'm sure you get what he's getting at. <laughs> yes, I mean it's an it's 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 an analogy, it's a metaphor. Uh, you you can use it, but gluttony in the strict sense is going to excess, uh, excessive eating or drinking uh, would be gluttony. Um, you can, in a sense, have spiritual gluttony in that uh, you go overboard in that you avoid any maybe go beyond of your prudence. state in life. Exactly. If you're a married man with children and they need you to supply food and a roof over their heads and an education, and you're spending the whole day in Eucharistic adoration, uh, you know th that's a nice thing to do, but it's irresponsible because you need to be working to earn money so that you could provide for them. Uh, likewise, if you're a brain surgeon and you have a surgery scheduled, an operation, you say, "No, I got to make my holy hour." No, <laughs> your job is to work on that guy's brain uh, or to open that lady's heart and, and fix it. You can make your holy hour another part of the day. So, uh, you know, it's this idea of temperance or moderation. And you can that applies in the spiritual life, too, because sometimes the devil, if he can't get us to sin, then he'll get us to overcompensate and get too, uh, you know, fanatic in, in a sense, like someone hasn't been practicing their faith for a long time, they go on retreat, now they're overzealous, so now all of a sudden they want to spend eight hours in the chapel, uh, they want to sleep on the floor, they want to eat just bread and water and never have anything else. That is not being temperate, that's not being moderate uh, in, in one's uh, spiritual practice. And what was the second part? I, uh, the, I, I got caught up with the uh, spiritual well, gluttony. <laughs> and then, uh, as opposed to the pursuit of wisdom, Yes. and how, wisdom do, is... how do I know which one I'm doing? <laughs> Wisdom is a, certainly a good pursuit. It's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, wisdom is different from knowledge, okay? Wisdom is the ability to make good decisions. Uh, knowledge is the collection of facts and uh, knowing truths. Uh, so wisdom works with, with knowledge, but you could be a wise person and not necessarily have all these uh, uh, degrees after your name. But pursuing wisdom, for the, that, that is seeking to, know, to make good decisions is always something that every Christian, every believer, every person should want to do. And what you want to avoid would be that uh, idea of spiritual gluttony, if you want to use that terminology, of going overboard. That your pursuit of wisdom eclipses your responsibility. Uh, if you have a, a spouse, if you have children, if you have a job, uh, if you're an airplane pilot... I want you paying attention to the plane. You could be praying your divine office another time in the day. <laughs> oh, my goodness. A very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Brian wants to know how God was created. He wasn't. That's, that's, that's why he's God, okay? 
God created everything out of nothing, creatio ex nihilo, but God himself was always in existence. He always was, is, and will be. So there is no, because if God had a beginning, how did that happen? You can't go from nothing to something unless there's the first cause, the prime mover, the uncaused cause, which, as Aristotle and Thomas tell us, uh, is God. So God must have no, no beginning and no end, otherwise he's not God. All right, we got a question from Jeremy, and it has at least a partial uh, uh, false premise to it. So I'll tell you that up front. <laughs> okay. But Jeremy said, if every soul has to pass through purgatory to get to heaven, then what does the Catholic Church say happens to the souls of Protestants who don't believe in purgatory? <laughs> well, as you pointed out rightly, okay, the Church does not say. It never said, and it will never say, Everybody must go through purgatory. There are some people who go directly straight to heaven. Uh, even when a saint has been canonized and recognized for their sanctity, no judgment has been made that they avoided purgatory. Because a purgatory is not chronological time as we understand it. It's a state of cleansing. And some people do their cleansing here on earth, or they sometimes use the phrase, he did his purgatory on earth. Some people don't need any cleansing because they've lived such a virtuous and holy and sanctified life. There is no need for any cleansing. Um, and just because you don't believe in purgatory doesn't mean that you don't need purgatory. Purgatory is not punishment, it's cleansing. So the pain of purgatory is the pain of cleansing. It's like when I was a hospital chaplain and I have to go visit somebody who is in that special isolation section, I would have to scrub my hands with a special soap for 15 minutes and the nurse wouldn't let me in until my hands were bright red from all the cleansing. And you had to, they even checked your fingernails uh, because some of the germs you couldn't see but they knew it was there. And so that's like a purgatory. It's cleansing of all this attachment to sin, stuff that I may even not even be aware of while well, I'm alive here on earth, but in the afterlife, God will show me that, and I want to be cleansed of this. So purgatory is not hell with, with a parole. Uh, if anything, it's a preparation for going to heaven. And then with regard to Protestants who don't believe in purgatory, what happens to them? <laughs> they might be in for a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you believe it or not doesn't qualify if you're going to go there. Uh, if you need it, you'll get it. And if you're there, you're going to be happy because you've got your yeah. ticket, okay? Yeah. It's like at the airport, all right? If you're on uh, boarding group one, you're getting on first. I was reminded recently of a quote from St. Augustine. Right is always right, even if nobody's doing it, and wrong is always wrong, even if everybody's doing it. Absolutely. Um, again, it's a special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your calls today. Anthony wants to know, how was it determined that the priest wear black and a white collar? How did that start? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. Um, you know, I haven't done the, the, the history on the exact emergence of the black. I know uh, it was easier to have black clothing um, because the colored clothing uh, cost more. Um, you know, even like with the Franciscans, there's a debate on, did St. Francis of Assisi, did he wear a brown habit or was it a gray habit? Uh, the colors were not as important as the fact that it was recognizable that you were a cleric. And more so than the black uh, shirt and the white collar, 
the tonsure was the sign that someone, uh, you know, was first in the clerical state. So that was that nice little hole in the back of the head that they shaved. And uh, now God gives it to us whether we like it or not. Uh, I'm not going to show you mine, but... <laughs> so time has imposed the tonsure upon yes. you. Yes. Just wait for the Zucchetto. <laughs> again, again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Not taking your phone calls today, but if you'd like to be part of a future program, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. The man speaks the truth. It's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. We're emptying out the mailbag. Michael writes in, other churches seem to utilize the gifts of the Holy Spirit more than the Catholic Church, and I'm wondering why. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know necessarily how they, def how they decided that. Uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, the charisms, as they are often called, uh, one receives them initially at baptism, but then you get an increase of them at confirmation, and we certainly want people to know when they're being confirmed that these gifts are not just there to stay dormant, that you are to utilize them. Um, we encourage people to do that. Um, you know, I know sometimes people are focused on particular charisms that are not necessarily listed or defined as gifts of the Holy Spirit, like, uh, like glossolalia, the speaking of tongues. Um, that's a gift which I certainly believe exists, but... Not everyone's given that gift. Um, the fact that some people have the gift of interpretation of tongues, as St. Paul says. Uh, these are gifts that are tailored to the individual for the sake of the community, whereas the what has been defined as the theological gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit are given to everyone in their totality. You're not getting one or two. You're getting all of them, all the gifts, all the fruits, when you are confirmed, and therefore the use of the person for the sake of the ecclesial body, the church. Uh, the particular charisms that sometimes uh, charismatic Christians, charismatic Catholics uh, will talk about, uh, that's a different genre. And if you have those gifts, that's a blessing from God. But if you don't, you're not being ripped off. You're not you know, being uh, mistreated by God. And I think St. Paul makes that clear too in his epistle. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, not taking your phone calls today. There's a couple of different ways you can be part of an Open Line mailbag show. You can send us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com and put Monday or Father Trigilio in the e, uh, subject line. And then also, if you call our regular studio line at 833-288-EWTN, that's 833-288-3986 after... 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, then you will get kicked over to our listener comment line call, uh, comment line, and you can record a question for Father on that line. So let's take a listen to one of our listener comment line calls now. Beatrice, Fremont, Ohio. I wanted to ask two questions. One, people are saying that the Christmas tree is a sign of paganism, and two, 
Jesus is given name. They're saying his his full birth name is not Jesus. Can you please answer those questions? I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I'll answer the second one first because I can remember it better. (laughs) Um, Jesus surname was not Christ, okay, so there wasn't Christ <laughs> on the mailbox, Jesus Christ, Mary Christ, and Joseph Christ, but definitely his first name, his proper name, Yeshua, Jesus, okay, that was his name, uh, that's, you know, part of sacred tradition, and it's sacred scripture, he's called Jesus, uh, he's also known as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, but uh, that's a title, his proper name is Jesus, just as his mother's proper name was Mary, and his uh, foster father proper name was was Joseph. Uh, what was the first part? I forget now. So Ye- Yeshua bar Joseph. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it was um, Christmas is pagan. Oh, the tree, the Christmas yeah. tree. Uh, I've heard that before because you know uh, the the allegations that the Druids inserted themselves. But when you do research, you see that uh, people like Saint Boniface and others who were in Germany, uh, they used what was there. And just as St. Augustine talks about baptizing what was pagan, uh, whether you took an actual pagan and baptized them and made them into a Christian, the the Christian churches took pagan temples and transformed them into Catholic churches, basilicas, cathedrals. Uh, In Germany, they took uh, the, the evergreen, which by its very name, evergreen, meant all year round it was green. They use that now as a religious symbol. And uh, the use of Christmas trees or the Advent wreath, you know, don't come from pagan or Druid uh, roots. It was Christians who took what was available and transformed them. So we have no need to be worried, nervous, or uh, embarrassed to have Christmas trees on our homes or even in our churches. And even if we did kind of redefine or, or bless a <laughs> Druid practice. So what? That's like a twofer. And by the way, <laughs> the Christmas tree that they put up at, at Rockefeller Plaza in New York City, it was Italians, all right, Italian workers <laughs> who put up the first Christmas tree in New York, just in case you were wondering. There you go. And I, yeah, I, I wasn't, but thank you. Um, <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. But in all seriousness, you could fill probably the borough of Manhattan with the books you could write about the Italian immigrants' co- contribution to America. I believe that. Yeah. William writes in, what is the meaning of the word prayer? Prayer is basically uh, having a conversation with God. Um, we have different types of prayer. We have uh, the prayer of praise or adoration. We have the prayer of contrition uh, or, or sorrow. We have the, the prayer of thanksgiving, uh, of being grateful for what God has given us. And the prayer of supplication or petition, intercession, where we're praying for ourselves or for someone. So those are the different types of prayer. We also have kinds of prayer. We have vocal uh, prayer, uh, verbal prayer, formal prayer. And then we have mental prayer, uh, where we think about uh, pious things, holy things. And then we have contemplative prayer, where we're just enjoying being in the presence of God. Um, Now, the prayer we make with the saints, or when we pray to the saints, we are not adoring them, but we are 
using that intercessory prayer, we're asking them to pray for us uh, to Jesus, just as I would say to someone here on earth, could you pray for me? I'm having my appendix out next week. And a good Christian would say, no, you go to Jesus yourself. Of course, a good Christian would say, I'd be happy and I will pray for you. So when we pray to the saints, it's not adoration, it's petitioning. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Not taking your phone calls today. Um, Matthew writes in, what does it, sometimes we need to make the main thing the main thing. What does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? He died for our sins because the sin of Adam and Eve brought death into the equation. Adam and Eve would not have died had they not sinned. God gave them the preternatural gift of immortality. Uh, and so uh, death entered the equation. And the only way that we can overcome death is by one who died and then rose from the dead. Jesus died for our sins uh, it means that the guilt of sin, the ravages of sin, the punishment of sin, which is death, eternal death, never going to heaven, uh, that debt was paid by Christ. So the God-man, the one who's true God, true man, fully human, fully divine, uh, one divine person, he's the only one that was able to bridge that chasm, and he took on the sins of the world and of the universe for all time, past, present, and future, upon himself. And he paid the debt of sin by offering freely his life on the cross. And so uh, we were ransomed by his death. But that also means we have to connect ourselves because Jesus himself said, take up your cross daily and follow me. If he hadn't said that, we could have, presume, oh, well, I'll sit in the back of the bus and enjoy the ride. No. He said, take up your cross daily and follow me. So we have to also be part of the, of the project. We have to offer up our sufferings, unite them with his, and that also helps expiate sin. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're emptying out the mailbag for you, mailbag for you today. Got an email here from Lauren, and she writes in, Do we have any information on Mary about where she was assumed into heaven and exactly what happened? <laughs> well, we, we don't know the precise latitude and longitude, but it's most likely this took place at Ephesus where she had spent the rest of her natural life, we believe, and that it was there that she was assumed body and soul to heaven. Now, after she's taken up body and soul, She's taken them to heaven, so there's no geographical way of locating her after that. But when her time on earth ended, whether she died or not, because some of the Eastern uh, Christians, including Eastern Catholics, refer to her holy dormition, her falling asleep. In the Latin rite, we're, it's still uh, an open-ended question. Did she physically die or did she just fall asleep? But the point is, when her time on earth came to an end, her body and soul were assumed by Jesus, taken up to heaven, unlike when Jesus uh, ascended of his own divine power 40 days after uh, Easter. Again, a special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. Here's a really good question from Sam, Father, um, that will strike a chord in your pastoral heart. He said, I have a family member that was very traumatizing to me. And I wonder if I will remember that in heaven. 
Well, your memories will not be obliterated. Um, you're going to have infused knowledge, which, you know, this is speculative, but St. Thomas and others say, you know, uh, right here on earth, because we have our bodies uh, as part of who we are, body and soul, the soul is immaterial. So my intellect, which is part of my soul, depends on my body to get information. What happens after a person's dead, if they're in heaven or purgatory, how would they know what's going on down below? How could you have a communion of saints? Well, there must be some type of infused knowledge that takes place. But all the previous knowledge, your memories, certainly I think you're going to bring those with you uh, because that's part of who you are. But you're also going to have that enhanced by knowing things you never did know before or you never would have known had it not been that God uh, puts that in you. Um. Email from Nate. He said, I was reading Genesis, and it talks about how God had taken Enoch away. Did he go to heaven, or was he taken to some <laughs> other place? And why would God do that? Well, it's just like uh, the prophet Elijah, you know, uh, you know, taken up in a chariot. Uh, nobody was in heaven other than God and the angels until Jesus died on the cross and saved us. So where was Enoch? Where was Elijah? Uh, where is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those other fellows? Um, Just hi hanging out on the angels, <laughs> the angels' lounge on Concourse. They were in the B. green room, as yeah. they <laughs> would say. Um, we don't necessarily call it a purgatory because maybe they didn't need any cleansing. But the limbo of the dead is it often referred to, or the hell of the dead, uh, which is distinct from the hell of the damned. The hell of the damned are those people who are in hell for all eternity. Uh, they're being punished for their sins. The hell of the dead was a way of referring to that place which existed prior to the opening of the gates of heaven. Even good St. Joseph, who died before Good Friday, uh, he would have been in the hell of the, of the dead or the limbo of the dead because he even couldn't go to heaven until our Lord you know, opened the gates. Now the good thief, Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. He doesn't say at what precise moment. So even the good thief, if he chronologically died before Jesus, would not have been able to get into heaven until Jesus himself died. Uh, good question from Robert. He wants to know how Eastern Rite Catholicism is in union with Catholicism. In the most obvious way that they accept the papal primacy, uh, the supremacy of the Roman pontiff, the Bishop of Rome, uh, that he's infallible in matters of faith and morals, but also his primacy so that the, the Pope appoints uh, or ratifies the appointment of bishops in the Eastern Catholic Church. Uh, the sacred liturgy that they celebrate, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, is different from what we experience in the Latin Rite, but again, it's in full union because as Pope John Paul said so beautifully and adequately, uh, the Church has two lungs, East and West, and they're uh, those who are united with. Now, we don't use the term anymore for good reason, uniate. Uh, that's what sometimes the Eastern Orthodox call them. Uh, but they, they are Eastern Catholics. They're of full, equal rank and respect and right as the Latin right. Um, so the Eastern Catholics are fully united with us because the same seven sacraments, um, it's the same uh, catechism, all right, the church, and, you know, the authority is still... The Pope is the supreme head. They have their own bishops. My um, you know, classmate from the seminary days, Archbishop Skirla, is the arch-eparch of the Ruthenians in Pittsburgh. Um, 
you know, he was appointed by by the Holy Father. Um, be sure to check out the Sunrise Morning Show if you are an early riser. You can check it out tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time, and it'll run until 8 a.m. Eastern Time. Join Anna Mitchell and Matt Swain, and they will start your day with news and interviews with a Catholic perspective. They do a great job on that show. Lots of terrific information. That's the Sunrise Morning Show tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Barry says, why is, the, why is most of the Western world – boy, this is a great question – it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not a hard observation to make, and it's a great question. Why is most of the Western world more atheistic and irreligious, while while third world countries seem to maintain great faith? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, where there's prosperity, there's also the tendency uh, to the the deadly sins. Um, I took my mom uh, many years ago when she was still alive. Uh, we visited Poland, and it was obvious that during the time of the persecution of the Nazis and then of the of the Russians, the Russian uh, communists, uh, Poland flourished in terms of its vocations and its faith because they were being oppressed. And it wasn't that oppression was a good thing, but they appreciated uh, what it was that they had. And then once they became liberated of that, uh, things changed a little bit. Uh, when they were no longer being persecuted, and then they saw the the, the, the advantages of, of affluency, of prosperity. Uh, you know, that's the problem is that sometimes people uh, take advantage of it. Uh, they become comfortable. They feel entitled. And this happens anywhere. Uh, the immigrant church, you know, when a lot of our grandparents and great-grandparents came from the old country, uh, they left abject poverty behind. They came here. United States, and they found life not easy, but over a period of time, things got better. Uh, that's when mass attendance started to drop off a little bit. Uh, the more prosperous uh, a culture becomes, the more there's a tendency to put religion and that on the back burner. So that's why in poorer countries, uh, you see uh, the faith very strong uh, in the more affluent ones. And when you take the most affluent countries of the world, that's the reality, is that the church going is not as high as it could or should be. All right, put on your metaphysical zucchetta. Henry right, writes yeah. in, can you, help to under- can you help me to understand God incarnate? Didn't he become incarnate several times, like when he appeared to Abraham? And also, if Jesus' mother didn't exist yet, how does this all make sense? <laughs> Well, uh, with Abraham, the, the incarnation, incarnatus est, uh, the enfleshment, only took place when uh, the human nature, which was created of Jesus, was hypostatically united to his divine nature in his divine, one divine person. That was an event that took place uh, the moment he was conceived in his mother's womb which took place at the Annunciation, and then nine months in, later... In time. In time. Prior to that, there was no human nature of Christ. He was eternally the, the second person of the Trinity, no beginning, no end. But his sacred humanity was created in time. And from his conception, and now that sacred humanity will, will exist forever. But that's the incarnation, the enfleshment, okay, as it's sometimes called. 
when God spoke to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, when Moses saw the burning bush, that was not an incarnation. It may have been a theophany, especially with the burning bush, uh, which is a manifestation. But in Jesus, it's more than a theophany. It is the visible God, because Jesus being the second person of the Trinity, he's united always with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So where one is present, all three are there. So when you see Jesus, he said, when you see the Son, you've seen the Father. And you've seen the Holy Spirit. All three are present. That is distinct from the other interactions people had with God in the past. So for instance, even Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, David, Daniel, you name them, everybody else had an encounter with God. But in Jesus Christ alone is the union of the human and divine. Human nature, divine nature, it is one divine person. And his mother gives him his sacred humanity in that all his DNA is based on what she has to give, okay? Uh, there's no human father uh, with Jesus in his incarnation. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that Mary conceives uh, and bears the, the son. But Mary's biological material is what helps determine the color of his eyes, you know, the color of his hair, the shape of his nose, all those things that are uh, mothers uh, helped contribute. The only thing is, you know, you and I have a mother and a father who contribute, you know, in their own genetic way. And Jesus is just one uh, contributor there. All right, Mr. Seminary Theological Smart Guy. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego <laughs> before the birth of Christ, said to be in the fiery furnace dancing around with one who looked like the Son of Man? The term Son of Man has a couple of meanings. One could be, as Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, as uh, the second person of the Trinity, as the Savior, the Messiah, uh, the Anointed One. But Son of Man can also refer to an angel. Uh, it can refer to someone of heavenly origin. So the Church has not made a final de fide definition on that particular passage there. Uh, it would not make sense that Jesus would have been in the in the fiery furnace with them, um, but an angel would certainly be there to comfort them. I love it when the Hebrew children say, Oh, King. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Um, uh, Bo wants to know, is it really Jesus in the Eucharist? Really, truly, and substantially, as the Council of Trent tells us, uh, that he is there, it's just that he doesn't appear because the accidents or appearances of bread and wine remain, but the substance, that which is not seen, but that which makes a thing what it is. Okay, So it looks like bread, but it is Jesus' real, true, and substantial presence in the Holy Eucharist. That's why we, we cannot, it's not just optional, it's mandatory that we adore and worship the Holy Eucharist. Uh, because that is not a symbol, it's not a sign, it is a person. Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, and it's not dead flesh and blood, it's living flesh and blood. So my finger is part of me, all right? You step on my toe, I feel that, okay? You've done that to me. You slap me in the face, you slap my cheek, you've slapped me, okay? I'm the extension of, of all the parts that are on me that are living, Likewise with Jesus. So that's his real presence. That's him in the Holy Eucharist. 
You know, there's a famous Italian neighborhood in St. Louis called The Hill. Uh, gave rise to Yogi Berra, Joe Garagiola, and several other people. When The Hill, quote-unquote, kind of got full of immigrants, they started to spill over to a community on the Illinois side of the river, and that's the community that I grew up in. And I was a 30-something adult person the first time that I heard the doctrine of the Eucharist. And I grew up in an Italian community my entire life. And today, all of the studies tell us that more and more Catholics, even, do not believe in the real presence. Where is the disconnect? Well, as you point out, there's a recent Pew study that shows only 33% of Catholics believe in the real presence. Um, some of that is because uh, you know Catholics in the United States don't go to church as much as they should, so they're not being reminded of this. Um, they're being affected by their non-Catholic neighbors and friends who are nice, good people, but their beliefs that that's not the real presence have affected them to some degree. Um, the, the, the sense of identity that we are part of the mystical body of Christ, and Jesus made it clear, you must, not you can, you must eat my flesh, you must drink my blood. When a Catholic abandons that, you say, well, they're chucking out everything. And if they don't miss the Holy Eucharist, then they were, you have to say, I don't know if they were really Catholic to begin with. Because if you really truly believe that that's Jesus, how can you turn your back on him? But if you don't believe, if you think it's a symbol, if you think there's just a mystical presence, then yeah, you don't like the priest, uh, you don't like the singing, you don't like the church, you can pitch it all and then go join another denomination. But if I believe that's really Jesus, I cannot, I will not turn my back on it. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Absolutely. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael Bacall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to this very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Again, if you'd like to be part of a future uh, mailbag show, simply send us an email. That email address, once again, is openline at EWTN.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. Until we get together next time, God bless.